Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Herbert Smith Freehills Private Wealth and Charities podcast. Now, you might remember from some previous editions that we've gone through legal developments and the latest cases from around the world. We also had a chat uh, with our colleague, Mark, who had a previous life as a composer. Today, we're going more down the, the chatty line than the legal update line, and we're speaking with Ben Pollard. Ben is founder and CEO of a charity called Local Welcome. Ben is also a very old friend of mine. Uh, when preparing for this, I think we go back 20 years. Is that right, Ben? About that, yes. Um, about that. It um, makes it sound like I'm very old. But well, I think both of us are in are, that category. We're not as young as we were. <laughs> so, Ben, give us the 30-second intro to Local Welcome, what it does. We make it fun and easy for communities to cook and eat together. And what that means is often people who, for example, want to help refugees but don't know how, we use Facebook advertising in, at the moment, eight cities across the UK. Um, that's mostly places where people, uh, refugees are being resettled, um, often in slightly divided communities. And we make it really easy for people to then just come along to a church hall and we provide the food, the equipment, and invite the refugee guests. And people then follow a seven-step recipe uh, that involves someone reading out the steps and then in pairs people, uh, for example, peel the potatoes while both answering a question together for each step. So peel the potato and tell each other your favourite meal ever, for example. Um, and it takes about 45 minutes and then you eat together. And what we found is that it really just changes the dynamic and allows people to really connect, build trust, build relationships and it also helps refugees to practice English and start to understand the culture and kind of make connections to get jobs or kind of start rebuilding their lives. And which are those eight cities that you're in at the moment? We are in London, Cardiff, Glasgow, Belfast, Derby, Wakefield, Liverpool, Birmingham. One of the reasons we chose those cities is that they are the places where people are put into hostels when they first arrive before they're what's called dispersed and then sent to be kind of housed in other cities. So our hope for this year is that firstly we need to raise some more money, but once we've done that to be able to expand across the rest of the UK and into the cities where people are being kind of dispersed and housed um, for years at a time. What's brought you to where you are today? So in the context of Local Welcome, which started in 2015, after the photograph of Alan Curdy, the little boy who <laughs> drowned, and caused the world to really sit up and pay attention to the refugee crisis, that had some real resonance to me on a personal level as well, because when I was two years old, my family moved to Algeria. And when I was five, we had to leave because uh, it, it was not safe in Algeria anymore. We couldn't fly, so we had to cross the Mediterranean on a boat mm. to escape what was emerging as Islamic fundamentalist civil war and come back to the UK. So that story of mm. a little boy who crossed the same sea and it didn't work out, mm. um, it kind of touched a nerve, really. I grew up travelling around a lot. My dad was an army chaplain. Mm-hmm. He was in the first Gulf War. Unfortunately, that didn't go well for him particularly, and he's had PTSD for 30 years. I guess I also knew, in terms of working in this area, that war is bad. And I Mm -hmm. kind of knew that 
from the impact on my family. Fast forward a lot via kind of boarding school when you're an army kid often. I ended up going to art school and making films and then kind of was curious about how the world actually works. So went and did a master's and then kind of worked between bits of media and bits of politics. And before doing this, I was a community organiser. Which means? Well, it was made slightly less obscure by Mr. Barry Obama, Mm. who in Chicago worked by bringing communities, bringing leaders together who could agree on something despite their differences. And that kind of work happens in the UK, an organisation called Citizens UK. They did things like starting the living wage campaign and the whole idea of living wage. And some of the things that I was involved with included asking the UK government to resettle more than 254 refugees from Syria, which we had at the kind of the start of the, mm-hmm. the conflict there. Um, so about 2 million people had left. Germany was heading for resettling about a million people. And Theresa May had allowed several hundred over several years. Mm-hmm. And many kind of communities across the UK thought, maybe we could do better. That started as a campaign that got local authorities to agree that if the government increased the cap, they would resettle 50 Syrians. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of grew to about 50 local authorities. And that was all before that photo of the little boy that, that kind of created the, I guess, the kind of political space. Mm. So then after that, the government agreed to 20,000 people resettled, which was a huge improvement. And by that point, I'd left that campaign and was doing some slightly more international work with the Syrian leaders that I was working with. And really, the kind of photo caught a lot of us off guard, really. And I went back to just help out, and this amazing guy called Iyad, who'd been a dentist in Damascus, came and did some press. I kind of took him around, did interviews, BBC, Sky, Al Jazeera. He did a great job. And then came back for dinner at my flat with my brother and a couple of friends. And really the conversation there began with kind of, yeah, what do you need now? What are your friends and people like you? Because I wonder if there's a way that we could connect the thousands of people who want to do something, want to help in some way, with people like you, Hmm. kind of in the real world. Um, His response to that was, well, look, I was a dentist. I want to start rebuilding my life and doing dentistry things again. So for him, he needed to improve his English pass what's called an IELTS exam and kind of get a job in the meantime. So this idea kind of emerged of, well, what if we could connect people partly based around skills? So I I didn't know any dentists, if I'm really honest. I'm not sure I even like dentists. (laughs) (laughs) But if I knew one, I would have introduced Ian to them and they could have gone for a coffee. And, you know, that's kind of how the world works, right? So we started thinking, well, what if we did it, did something in a kind of unusual place? What if, for example, Starbucks? I knew a guy who knew a guy and managed to uh, get in touch with Starbucks. And to their credit, they gave us free coffee and space in cafes in 12 cities. And Iyad and his friends got on social media and organized groups of about 12, mostly young guys. And then through various other campaigns, we emailed about 20,000 people saying, are you bored and frustrated with just clicking? So lots of people were wanting to do something. But many of the options were either kind of donate some money, Mm. click a petition, or go to Cali. Mm. And 
you know, for a lot of people, that there's, there's a big gap there. Mm. Kind of want to do something, something local, and something kind of based on a relationship and experience. And a lot of the work that I'd done in this old-fashioned community organising, it was kind of quite distrustful of technology. And we would always be quite kind of snobbish about petitions, mm. partly because, in my experience, they didn't always build power. So people with power don't always care that much about a petition. Easy to ignore. They're easy to ignore. Yeah. But particularly, let's say, if you're a politician, real bodies in a room, let's say, are harder to ignore because you look at them all and think, well, they've gone to the effort of coming to this hall, let's say, for hustings or whatever else. And you think, gosh, what if they and their friends all voted? That could be tricky. So there's something about when you get people to kind of turn out physically it has real power. So you want to contact 20,000 people, or you, at least you ended up contacting 20,000 yeah, people. Yeah, we sent out these sort of mass emails. Yeah. And, and how many of those landed? That's a good question. The simple answer is, I can't remember how many we got, because we only had about 20 spaces for each of these meetings and cafes. Right. And we filled them all. So it was great that there were hundreds of people wanting to take part yeah. um, and you know, it was all a bit of a blur so I was sort of less so worried about So demand outstripped supply? Demand so. did outstrip supply yeah. um, and, and from there we just went kind of what began in cafes moved after a couple of months these, these groups So what, what was happening meeting. in these cafes? Yeah, what, good what, question. what was going on? So essentially people like Iyad mm. were very simply rocking up to Starbucks and people who wanted to help refugees but didn't know how were coming along kind of cautiously to really just have a coffee. And it was as simple as we had, we had a little bit of structure in those, in those times. So we had sort of someone who was leading each meeting who would kind of introduce people to each other and try and start the conversations. And we wanted people to kind of you know, say their name, but keep it fairly simple. And Particularly if one of the aims here is to help people learn English, presumably. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So we knew that, look, Get people in the same room, ask them some really simple questions. And at the time, it was based around jobs and skills and those kind of things. So quickly from there, I got a developer to build a website that was going to try and match people up. So are you a dentist? Come and help a dentist. Mm. And other kind of clever things like that. It was very shiny. It was very clever. It was entirely pointless. Um, How so? And well, because nobody used it. And that was a really helpful as a thing in kind of building technology where people talk about kind of failing early. Mm. And um, I don't want to brag, but oh, I did. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But but you're you're, you're smiling and laughing about it now and saying what a great thing it was. Did it feel like a great thing at the time? It was excruciating. It was was genuinely really frustrating and painful, but really helpful Mm. as well. So I kind of needed that, that hit of failure. And how much time, effort was invested in what you described as failure? Well, I think, thankfully, it was only months. So right. probably about a three-month period. Mm-hmm. A lovely guy called Alex Pounds. Um, and he built this great site. But what I didn't know then is that building technology is really about listening to people and understanding what they need. This whole idea of kind of user needs is what... 
So you were assuming what they needed rather than actually asking them what they needed. Exactly. I was assuming, and there's a way, when technology goes wrong, it's often that people blame the people who are going to be using it and say, no, 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 you're doing it all wrong. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, when you spend a lot of time or money on building a service, Mm. you know, building some tech, then it's a, it's a, in some ways it's sort of it's psychologically understandable reaction, but it doesn't help. It doesn't get you anywhere. Um, so how did, how did you get from the Folia website mm-hmm. to where you are today? So next stop was a guy called James Darling, who's now a trustee, and he'd worked at the Government Digital Service. Now in the tech world, GDS is called. He's actually hugely respected. It's kind of one of the best examples of building digital services. There aren't that many parts of government that are looked at as exemplars within their sector or industry. Um, And most people haven't heard of GDS, Um, but they were doing some amazing work. Back to the story. Mm -hmm. James Darling, who had worked for the government, came to join us because previous to that, when he left, he had gone to go and help a campaign for a, an MP that no one had heard of called Jeremy. Um, and he helped build the digital infrastructure for this guy called Jeremy. And it went quite well. And then everyone had heard of Jeremy. And James went on to be the technical architect for the Labour Party. So he came to join me and see what we could do together. Um, I think it's fair to say he was a bit burnt out by that experience, but also had learnt a lot. So he goes up to Sheffield to one of these meetings. By this point, it's in a church hall rather than a cafe. And a guy called Ahmed sits down next to him. He says, great, you're here. Brilliant. There's pizza. There's a little group of them. And this is before we had really any structure to these meetings. And Ahmed says, hi, so the Home Office spelt my name wrong. So I've turned down my refugee status offer because my wife whose name is spelled correctly won't be allowed to come here if I accept this because of family reunion and all these kind of complications and he was kind of right it was it was a tricky situation so says Ahmed James what should I do James is good at coding <laughs> he's good at thinking creatively he has some political instincts he doesn't know about immigration law. He doesn't even know that if he gave any advice, it would be illegal because he's not OISC registered. It's a problem. And that was one of many subtle challenges that we started to face when you bring people together who are different, however positive their intentions. So what we started to look at, we called it at the time, the puzzle. Like what Can we give people a thing to do together? And we even played with ideas of literally a puzzle. (laughs) I mean, what would that do? And I think we even tried that once. As it happens, I love food and had actually gone to chef school before uni. Of course you had been, because that was one of the other 12 careers that you've had uh, at the time. It's actually, it's probably the career which I always... It's the one that got away. (laughs) Um, So not many did. No, exactly. Um, well, this time. <laughs> but, so, but, you, but you moved away from then the idea, well, from, from the potential of someone saying, what can you do for me? Yes. Well, More we towards what can we do together or how can we be friends? In some ways, we, we still needed to kind of harness that sense of people wanting to help and not knowing how. Yeah. So it was less a case of saying to people, no, no, don't help, but more about understanding those kind of desires or kind of needs 
and trying to firstly remove some of the barriers to make it really easy for people to just turn up, whether it's just turn up to Starbucks or just turn up to a church hall. But what we found was that it was really helpful to think about a shared activity. Now, the thing about food is I love food and we were playing around with different things. And the idea was what about rather than just eating a meal together, because it had gone from sharing coffee to sharing food, what if people prepared some food together? Would that give them that kind of tactile shared activity? Now, some of the things around that period, I mean, don't want to go into boring too much detail, but there was an article in the New York Times called 36 Questions to Fall in Love. You should, you should all Google it. It's great. It's fascinating. And it's a psychologist who kind of worked out that the kind of the hypothesis was, can you get two humans who don't know each other to both answer these 36 questions? It takes about two hours. And, you know, one of the end steps is tell each other about your mum or something. You know, his thing was, they will fall in love if they follow these steps. I thought that was fascinating. Mm. So really thought, well, what happens if cooking meets 36 questions now? We probably don't want everyone to fall in love. That could be a bit weird, but might it just help them to be less weird with each other and also to bring some kind of appropriate vulnerability? So there's another thing where we go back to Sheffield's a month later and the first thing we tried was my granny's drop scone recipe. And I bought some of those kind of crepe makers from Robert Dice. Other hardware stores are available. And phoned up my mum and got the drop scone recipe and went up to Sheffield. And we were meeting in someone's house then because we were sort of trying out different venues. And it was electric, every pun intended. It just totally transformed the kind of experience. And I looked over at one point and James was stirring this batter. And he'd been stirring it for about five minutes. And I was like, you don't need to keep doing that. But there was something really powerful happening in having this thing to do with your hands, basically. And he was just nodding uh, uh, as the other guy was talking. And then we eat the pancakes. And then the guy at the end says, this is the first time I've been in someone's house. And I've been here for two years. And this is the first time I've forgotten I'm a refugee. It was amazing. Then another guy says, look, by the way, I've got some problems with my papers and I'm, I'm kind of homeless at the moment. Look, if you can help, great. If you can't, then look, thanks. This has just been amazing. And the difference between that and the kind of desperation of, hi, you're here, you have to help me, was really tangible. And there was something about when you kind of help people just to relax and you know, have that shared activity, etc. then there's all sorts of interesting neurology going on. Then you were able to just kind of interact with the other and have empathy and compassion and these sorts of things. Um, so that was exciting and that was a turning point. And in some ways, we've kind of just built on that over the last three years. And building on that meant, okay, working out, well, the recipes need to change a bit. And how do we use technology to find people who want to help refugees and don't know how? We kind of need them to also contribute something financially. So there's a thing about, okay, for about a year, we had these groups emerging of people starting to cook meals together and answer questions. So it works as someone reads out a seven-step recipe and then in pairs, a guest and a member, as we now call them, sit together and both answer the same question. Because one of the other things we found, the lovely family who hosted us at that Sheffield meal when we started to introduce these questions, they were really reluctant, particularly the mum, lovely humans. But for her, 
her sense of, look, I'm here to help, she was literally sort of saying, oh, no, no, I don't need to answer these questions like, what's your favourite meal? Or tell us a memory of your childhood. She wasn't able to just have that little bit of vulnerability, which, which was kind of also a real problem to us because it's a sense of, look, lots of people maybe want to come and save people, but we also just need to be a bit cautious about that. And there's something about the kind of inclusive ritual that we've designed that really, I guess, leans into the kind of power imbalance mm-hmm. and allows ways for people to just be humans together and have that little bit of appropriate vulnerability. And I think that's the kind of magic that that has emerged over the last couple of years of following these processes of what they call human-centered design, which is really about finding, well, why didn't anyone use my website? (laughs) Uh, Oh, because that's not what they want. All right, what what do they want? Well, we better ask them. (laughs) Okay, right. And let's ask lots of them and repeatedly. And then let's test something. And let's keep it really simple and then iterate and kind of prototype and build on there. Unfortunately, that's all we've got time for today on this podcast. But thank you very much to Ben Pollard, founder and CEO of Local Welcome. We're going to continue this conversation in a second episode to come soon.